Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Good morning, Jesus 911 on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Ruben Nava along with Jesse Romero, two man car. We're here on Soul Patrol and uh, want to say good morning to you, Jesse. Um, you're out. Hey, good morning. For, for, good morning from the state of Illinois, Ruben, out here in an undisclosed bunker. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. But Jesse, yes, last uh, Tuesday we talked about uh, what makes mass invalid. It was part one of a two part article by a, a canonist, uh, Kathy Caridi. And um, very good. Uh, she has some good takes on it. And um, yeah, and I'll tell you, this is important because this is the very essence of our Catholic faith is the holy sacrifice of the mass. We've got to get this right. So we have to know the do's and don'ts. And that's why I thought it would be important to take two segments uh, to really do a deep dive into what the what canon law says about a valid mass or not. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So um, anyway, we're in Passion Week, Jesse. And, uh, you know, um, the week that changed the world, Ruben. Right. We want to ramp up our uh, ramp up our prayer life and our, uh, you know being able to maybe do a little bit more in our our, our Lenten uh, uh, fast and 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 penance. So it's a, it's a really good time to uh, if, if you haven't gotten your family to confession uh, so they can receive our Lord, make sure they get there this week and uh, so that uh, they can in partake in the uh, the. The Blessed Sacrament on uh, Easter Sunday. Amen. Ruben, I just want to mention one thing before we get to the article. It's it's interesting to see uh, just kind of on a, on, on a more of the, of the culture war front. It's interesting to see that the Washington Post and other media outlets are, are admitting uh, that uh, the Hunter Biter laptop story is true. Uh, it, this is something that was denied like 18 months ago. They ba- basically blacked out this story. But now you have one media outlet after another saying, you know something? Uh, there's something to the story needs to be investigated. Had this happened 18 months ago, guess what? Unelected Joe Biden wouldn't be sitting in the Oval Office. I just I just want to throw that You're in. Right. There. You're right. And uh, but I think what the only reason they're coming clean now is because they know that uh, there's a grand jury that's impaneled and they're hearing they're looking at, at this. And so they don't want to they don't want the grand jury to release. They want to have the noose out there like, oh, yeah, yeah, we we agree, you know, and it's it's to kind of cover their own butt, you know, Um, the old CYA. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. A late a day late and a dollar short. But uh, hey, you know, we're happy. We're happy to have them along. Yeah. But at at least uh, I mean, uh, again, you and me know we're not we're not dumb. Half the country knows that the election was stolen. Yeah. They said, oh, that was uh, we don't know that that's uh, Hunter Biden's laptop. Then they said, "Okay, well, that's Russian disinformation. And then they said, "Okay, well, uh, didn't involve the president. The president didn't have any knowledge. And just one lie after another. They just. (laughs) Unbelievable. Uh, I can't. Yeah. yeah. And like you said, Tuesday, Jesse, there is not a Catholic in good standing that can vote for the Democratic Party, any any candidate because of the platform that they they have chosen. And um, it's demonic. It's, uh, you know, Freemasonic. It's there's so many things that are wrong with it. And uh, it's not pleasing to God. That's for sure. Yeah. And we're just warning you as your brothers in Christ, because we love you. 
uh, you, you you must abandon voting voting for the Democrat Party. You must in order to save your soul, because the catechism says in paragraph 1864 that you are guilty by participation if you even vote for somebody that you know is promoting the culture of death and you know his their voting record. If you vote for that person knowingly, you are supporting what they stand for, his sin or her sin now becomes your sin. Mm. And that's the last thing that we want any one of you is to go to your judgment with mortal sin, because if you do, uh, the elevator is going to go straight down. And by, and by that same token, we have to pray for our, our prelates, our priests and bishops and cardinals because, and the Holy Father, because uh, many of them are entrenched in that, uh, you know, in that, in that yeah, party. It, it, exactly. It, it was absolutely, Ruben. They have to disconnect from that party because their soul's in jeopardy even more than ours, because I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. They're the teachers. They're the successors of the apostles. They have much more responsibility than us. And many of them, at least half of them in this country, are getting it wrong because I've heard, I've been told by good priests that at least half of the bishops vote for the Democrat Party. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. All right. Well, what makes the mass valid? Part two. Here's the, here are a couple of questions that we'll get into some of the answers because this is important. We have to get this right. Here's a question. At mass, one visiting priest consistently and with full intention refuses to elevate the Eucharist at the consecration. Rather, he offers it to the congregation. He says this in line with the theology brought about by Vatican II. The focus should be on the sharing and communion with God as community rather than a sacrificial offering. So the question continues. As a middle-aged Catholic with some self-education on such things, it seems to me he is missing proper intent and proper form required for a valid sacrament. The bishop has been approached on the matter and laughed. What recourse do the faithful have in such a case, clear and intentional rejection of the rubrics of the mass is a sacrilege, or at the very least, heretical, isn't it? If he does not intend to turn bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus, then what is it if not wrong intent? Again, through self-study, the rubrics are very specific on the elevation. He clearly is protesting the form. So, Reuben, what does the canonist respond? <laughs> Okay, so she says, uh, as we just saw in in, uh, in one of her other previous articles, what makes a mass invalid? Part one, that's what we just went over on Tuesday. There are all sorts of liturgical, liturgical irregularities, which unfortunately have been and are perpetrated during masses all over the world. But as objectionable as they may be, they don't necessarily render the mass invalid when it comes to the validity of a mass that's key is what's key is the you know the priest's consecration of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ we we also saw that unsurprisingly canon law is in full accord with catholic sacramental theology which teaches that for a valid sacrament what's needed are valid form these are the words right and this involves you know, the words spoken by the minister of the sacrament and matter such as bread wine w- water for baptism etc and um, an intention of the minister to do what the church intends. These are, of course, different for each sacrament. So, Stephen, the guy who's asking the question, is suggesting that a priest who says Mass at his parish is not celebrating valid Masses because of a defect in his intention. So let's take a closer look at what exactly is happening at the Mass, at what the priest told Stephen, and what the church teaches, and then we'll see what conclusions can be drawn. Go ahead, Jess. According to Stephen, the gentleman that asked the the question, 
The problem is that the priest in question does not elevate the host after the consecration. <clears throat> Note that Stephen doesn't indicate that the words of consecration as spoken by the priest are irregular in any way. Rather, at issue is what the priest does with the host after he consecrates it. Instead of elevating the host for the faithful to see and adore, the priest offers it to the congregation, which presumably means that he holds the host out rather than up. Stephen asserts that the priest is missing proper form required for a valid sacrament. But as we saw in part one of, my, of her article, she says, when it comes to consecrating the Eucharist, the form required for validity is the words of consecration. What a priest does with the sacred species after the consecration should be, of course, in accord with the rubrics, but it doesn't affect the validity of the, of the consecration, which at that point has already been affected by the priest's words. Go ahead, Ruben. And in fact, actual fact, the Stevens assertion that the elevation is required by the mass rubrics is incorrect. The Ordo Missae, which contains the rubrics for the celebration of Mass, states exactly the same thing at the moment of consecration in every one of the four Eucharistic prayers found in the Missal. He, the priest, shows the consecrated host to the people, places it again on the paten, and genuflects in adoration. And he shows the chalice to the people, places it in the corporal, and genuflects in adoration. Traditionally, of course, showing, showing in uh, quotes, involves elevating the sacred species so that everyone present can see and adore them. But as can be seen here, this is not what is explicitly required by the rubrics. Stephen says that the priest at his parish offers the host to the congregation, which certainly sounds like he is showing the host to them. Consequently, it sounds like the priest isn't violating the rubrics at all. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I think when, when, the, holy, when the priest holds the, the, the sacred chalice and the Holy Eucharist, high and lifted up for a long time. It is beautiful. I mean, you get, you get teary-eyed. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's important, what, what the canonist is saying here, what's critical in this, in, at this part are the words of Jesus Christ being said properly. And, of course, uh, his hands that are ordained uh, over the bread and wine calling down the Holy Spirit. That's what's important. I mean, we, I, I wish that all priests would extend their arms, you know, to the heavens with the Holy Eucharist for, you know, one minute. Mm. But, uh, but that doesn't, if, if they don't do that, the canonists is saying that doesn't invalidate the consecration. That's, that's the argument that she's making. Jess, probably uh, maybe a year or two after I really came back to my faith, started going to the Latin Mass, I was uh, popping into a, a church in Montebello uh, just before I, I went to work. I had some time to, you know, to sit in there and, and, and pray and um, I, I saw a priest that came in through the back door. I didn't know it was the priest. He walked in in jeans, cowboy boots, and a polo shirt. And he had a long, uh, you know, ponytail tied behind, tied in a ponytail. His hair was long. And mm. um, anyway, I go, wow, that's, uh, well, I guess that's going to be the Eucharistic minister, uh, no, or the reader or something like that. And he walked in up into the sack. Uh, hold, hold that story, Ruben. All right. Teaser. Hold the story. Jesus 911, we'll be right back. Ruben's got a story. I've heard this one before. <laughs> it's a good one. We'll be right back. Stick around. Don't change the dial. Now. 
back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. We are back, Jesus 911. Uh, got, a, got a correction here. Uh, Mr. Engineer uh, pointed out that I said the Eucharistic ministers. The Eucharistic minister is the priest. These are ministers of the Eucharist is what I, I was referring to. And this is all obviously in, in the Novus Ordo. So, um, yeah. And the Novus Ordo, they're called, the lay people are called the extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. The only people that are the uh, ordinary ministers or Eucharistic ministers are clergy. Correct. The, the lay people are the extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. By the way, that office has been uh, so abused because it's supposed to be an office kind of like St. Tarsisius. Mm-hmm. where they send you out to the homebound to the sick in hospitals where there's not enough priests to cover. It's not supposed to be for the mass. It does say in the Novus Ordo rubrics, in case of emergency, you know, there's so many people like a Holy Mass at Dodger Stadium, mm-hmm. something like that. Mass at the LA Coliseum, yeah. uh, Mass at the Los Angeles Sports Arena. That would be an exception but not every Sunday at your parish. That's that's a liturgical abuse. Go ahead, Ruben. Okay, so the story goes, as, as I'm watching this um, this gentleman walk up to the aisle into the sanctuary and then into the sacristy, then he comes out and he starts preparing the, you know, um, the ambo with the readings, and he starts preparing, you know, uh, doing all the things he needs to do. I said, okay, so he's he's helping the priest out. And, and then lo and behold, when the Mass starts, I oh, by the way, I... Uh, you know, I, I said, oh, I'll just stay for mass. I didn't know there was a mass at this hour. I still have time. So the 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 guy comes out and he says, he's the priest. Lo and behold, you know, he's got, you can see his cowboy boots and his jeans underneath his, uh, now, not that it's, that it's wrong. It's just irregular, right, right. you know? And okay, so, yeah. so it just, uh, you know, I was like, wow, this is, this is kind of crazy. I'd never seen this. I'd never seen this. So, you know, you used to be seeing priests in black pants and black shoes and yeah. not, you know, not coming some coming from the rodeo you know so uh so he when he does when he when he uh in his homily he said if you're a catholic you got to act like a catholic and i remember distinctly saying him saying that then when he went to the did the consecration kind of like this this guy who's asking the question Stephen, i noticed something that was amiss something was awry because the priest didn't genuflect and it's obviously in the rubrics because you know the canonist here says that that you have to genuflect you know after the elevation of the host and the cup and so he didn't genuflect and i'm thinking in my mind oh this guy doesn't believe anymore because i had just read that the intention is also the third part that makes it valid and i said there's no way he could believe if he he's not he's not genuflecting in my mind i got so worked up jesse uh not (laughs) and i do and i and i again i was still a bit like a baby in the in my faith but I just remember saying, reading that uh, I can't partake in a dubious sacrament. So I said, I'm not going to communion. I'm not going, you know, I'm, I was, I said, that's it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm standing firm on this one. So I didn't go to communion and, uh, you know, but afterwards I was sitting there praying doing Thanksgiving after mass and I was shaking. I was like, man, this, this, this I, I felt like I was moved. And I, I went to the the sacristy and I, and I just poked my head in the door was open and I said, and he was, he was sitting there and I said, father, do you have a minute? And I, you know, he says, yeah, what is it? And I, I just thought I've never been so scandalized in, in my life. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and 
he goes, well, what is it? You know, I was, well, you know, the, well, first of all, you know, I told him about the genuflection and everything. And then, uh, and then uh, you said, if you're going to be a Catholic, you got to act like a Catholic. Well, if you're going to be a priest, you should act like a priest and dress like a priest. He goes, What's wrong with the way I'm dressed? I go, well, it's not typical for the priest to come here, you know, straight off the street and not, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I just gave him the example. I said, look, I'm a deputy sheriff. And if I approached your car on a traffic stop, dressed like your dress, wouldn't something you think, hey, this guy, you know, what's wrong with this picture? And and so he, he goes, I still don't see your point. And I'm like, let me just ask you one thing, Father. Do you believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist? And I was shaking, Jesse. I've never done this before. <laughs> Because you're you're sincere. Yes, I, yeah, I yeah. believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And he and he goes, "What does that have to do with it?" I go, "Father, that has everything to do with it. <laughs> you. Wouldn't be acting the way you're acting, <laughs> and you're dressing the way you're dressing." <laughs> and uh, anyway, I have a good day. And uh, yeah. so, I I mean, I could be completely wrong. Could be off. I don't know. But it just, I was moved to do that. I've never done that since. Um, I I have talked to priests, but never so animated. But, uh, okay, so we're we're getting... Ruben, uh, you did it. You you did it from from a point of good faith. You you did it because I'm sure you were concerned about, uh, you know, the mass being done properly, the the priests, you know, having the proper intent. I, I think... I think you erred on the side of caution. That, that's what I would say. That's, mm. that's, that's my, that's my verdict. As I hear your story, <laughs> I've heard it before you've told me. Yeah. I think you erred on the side of caution. Okay. Good job. Okay. So let's see, where are we here? Um, so it's uh, it says it's, it's worth observing that at, yeah. that at this point that Stephen mm-hmm. referenced self-study and some self-education on some things to explain how he reached his conclusions. But if you're going to accuse a priest of celebrating an invalid mass because of a defective intention, since he fails to follow the rubrics, an extremely serious accusation, wouldn't it make sense if your self-education involved, first of all, determining what the rubrics actually require? Stephen asserts that the rubrics are very specific on the elevation, but as just as just seen, this, this is untrue. Then he does not explain where he got this information. So I think the candidates is saying, you know what, if, uh, if you're going to make, if you're going to make an accusation, make sure you've got your, your T's crossing your I's dotted, you know, make sure you actually have the, and I'll tell you the safest, the safest one I tell Catholics to remember is the general instruction of the Roman Missal chapter, uh, yeah, chapter 22. Just remember that germ 22. Why? It says there, a priest cannot add, take away, modify, or change anything during the Holy Mass. So that's always the safe one. Like so when they say, well, Father, why are you having to sing happy birthday? Well, why can't I? Germ 22. Father, why are you making a sing happy anniversary? Mm-hmm. Why can't I? Ah, germ 22. So that, that one pretty much, that, that, that's the go-to one for lay Catholics, Ruben. I'll, yeah. just, throw, I'll just share that with you. I, germ I, 22. And going back to my story, I didn't, you know, I didn't even uh, contemplate that that the, maybe he has a bum knee or something. He can't genuflect, you know, or elderly uh. priests, you know, the, you, you, you mentioned how you want to see the elevation for a, a period of time, but some of them, some elderly priests, you know, they can't keep their arms up that long, you know, so that's true. Kind of quick, and I've seen it. I've yeah. seen it. So the, and I've seen a priest that has trouble. Uh, he can't uh, genuflect. So he, he, he bows reverently, you know, but um, yeah, I've seen that too. Okay. 
So, but for the sake of argument, even if the rubrics did specifically require the priest to elevate the host and chalice, failure to do this would not constitute a defect of intention, as Stephen clearly seems to think. A big part of Stephen's confusion here appears to be the failure to distinguish between intending to follow liturgical rubrics and intending to validly consecrate the Eucharist. As a rule, of course, they should always go together, but that doesn't mean they are the same thing. So thus, Stephen's generic question, clear and intentional rejection of the rubrics of the Mass is a sacrilege, or at the very least, heretical, isn't it? Can be answered with an unqualified no. This is presumably why, when Stephen raised this issue with the bishop, he laughed at the notion that the priest's Mass was invalid, simply because of the way he holds the host after the consecration. True, it may have been tactless for the bishop to react in this way to a concerned member of the faithful, although it's hard to say without having been present to see and hear the whole exchange. But the bishop's position is, in fact, the theologically correct one. Since the issue here involves an alleged defect of intention, let's continue to look at what Stephen tells us, particularly when the priest was asked to explain his reason for handling the Eucharist the way he does. According to Stephen, the priest says this in line with the theology brought about by Vatican II, the focus should be on sharing and communing with God as community rather than a sacrificial offering. Once again, without having been present at the discussion, it is difficult to draw definitive conclusions, but one can infer from this statement that the priest, that the priest is denying the sacrificial nature of the Mass and thus has no intent to consecrate the body and blood of Christ. Put differently... What exactly does a priest have to intend when he administers the sacraments? Mm. Go ahead. So uh, theologians have been discussing the niceties of this question for centuries. So the issue is nothing new. Uh, Speaking broadly, the, the general consensus has been that the priest, who in many cases throughout history hasn't necessarily been all that well educated in theological matters, simply needs to have the intention to do what the church teaches, whatever that happens to be. Um, in 1547, for example, the Council of Trent decreed this. If anyone saith that in ministers, when they effect and confer the sacraments, there is not required the intention, at least doing what the church does, let him be anathema, from session uh, 7, canon 11. And this isn't true only a priest. The same holds for non-priest ministers of the sacraments, as we saw in uh, When Can Catholic Soldiers Receive Sacraments from Non-Catholic Chaplains, and that was a good article. I read that one. And do converts have to be rebaptized? Um, anybody can validly baptize, even if he hasn't, he, he isn't himself baptized, provided that he has the requisite intention. Yes, it has indeed happened th- that at the scene of a horrific car accident, for example, where a mother and her infant appear to be dying, the mother has asked a non Christian paramedic to quickly baptize the baby. People who work for many years in the world of emergency services can actually become quite used to doing this sort of thing. The minister of the sacrament in this case is obviously not a Catholic priest or a Catholic at all, and so he doesn't believe what the Catholic Church teaches. And in fact, he may not really understand what exactly it is the Church teaches about baptism, but having the intention to do whatever it is that he's supposed to do is sufficient. Therefore... In general, when a Catholic priest pronounces the words of consecration over the bread and wine at Mass, so long as he has the basic intention to do what the Church teaches, that's quite enough for validity. 
If on the other hand, a priest decided for some wild reason that he absolutely did not intend to consecrate the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, that would be different. But how could we reasonably extrapolate from what Stephen has told us about the priest at his parish and conclude that this is what he is thinking? So I think, Ruben, that's, that's, the, that's the gist of the whole article is sometimes we see things that, that, that you know, the, our, our senses today just kicks in, our, 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 our Catholic antennas, but ultimately we don't know what's in the priest's heart. We don't know his intention. And so that's it's always difficult to say, well, he didn't intend to do this. And we can say he didn't say this right, but to say he didn't intend to do something, that's something that really only God knows. Yeah. So and, even, uh, and we'll, we'll, yeah. even when you're looking at the externals, you, you can't determine if his intention is what the church intends to do. We hope it does because yeah. we want to receive the valid Eucharist. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But we can't read his heart. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're going to pick it up uh, on the other side of the break. Um, Jesus 911. We're, talk, we're talking about what, a, what makes the Mass invalid. Don't change that dial. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Two man car, Jesus 911, talking about the how to make the mass, what makes a mass invalid. So anyway, (laughs) Jesse, you're having a good time over there in that bunk. Uh, Yeah, I'm just, I just have to make sure that, uh, uh, I I watch what I say before before the microphone turns on. I think I had a hot mic. Copy. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ruben, the article we're, we're reading an article is called "What Makes the Vast Valid." It's written by a, a canon lawyer. This is part two. Really good information. It's out, actually purifying my understanding of uh, of validity versus invalidity. So this this is a good primer for me as well. The questioner Stephen, the canonist, writes this. Stephen is on the right track when he asks the general question, quote, if he does not intend to turn bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, then what is it if not wrong intent? Close quote. But nothing the priest has said, that, uh, as reported by Stephen, gives the slightest indication that this is his intention. Thus, there is absolutely no justification here for excluding that the priest is failed or concluding that the priest is failing to consecrate the bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ and thus saying an invalid mass. So if this priest's attitude towards the Mass doesn't render his consecration invalid because of a defect of intention, what would a genuine defect of intention look like? Remember that as noted above, all that is needed for validity is a basic intention to do what the church intends. An example of a defective intention, therefore, would involve the priest denying, at least interiorly, that he intends to do what the church teaches. If the priest actually decides that he does not intend to consecrate the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, that he does not want to affect the consecration in the way that the church intends, well, that would be pretty defective. Certainly this kind of thing could happen, but it would require the priest to deliberately conclude that he is theologically going to swim upstream 
against the current of the entire Catholic Church. This would be a far cry from a priest just making comments about the nature of the Mass that aren't verbatim repetitions of the Church's traditional statements. Mm, okay. All that is all that being said, if we assume that Stephen is faithfully repeating the priest's words regarding the theology brought about by Vatican II, it does sound like this priest, like so many others, may have a general misunderstanding of the teachings of the Second Vatican Council on the Mass. And that's true, Jesse. We we know that uh, some some of these um, seminaries uh, they're just it's kind of watered down um, teachings. And and you've talked to seminarians yourself. I have too. Oh gosh. And um, you know, like you you've mentioned, sometimes they have to they're reading their own books because they're not getting enough uh, <laughs> of the meat and potatoes over there. So anyone who searches the conciliar documents for a statement to the effect that the priest should not focus on the Mass as a sacrificial offering will look in vain. On the contrary, Sacrosanctum Sanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, promulgated in 1963, reaffirms that the Mass is indeed a sacrifice. And it says here, quoting that, uh, that document, Christ is always present in his church, especially in her liturgical celebrations, he is present in the sacrifice of the Mass, not only in the person of his minister, the same now offering through the ministry of priests who formerly offered himself on the cross, but especially under the Eucharistic species. Ruben, most people, uh, the left, they bank on the fact that most Catholics don't read the documents of Vatican II. For example, I mean, you read the documents of Vatican II. I had to study them for my master's degrees. That's why I know them fairly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it says the word is over and used over and over again. The mass is a sacrifice. And it says uh, Latin is supposed to be given primacy of place. Gregorian chant is supposed to be used as a sacred music. There are so many things, Ruben, that the liberals just bank on the fact that the average lay Catholic doesn't know or read. So they just run roughshod over what a lot of the things. The Vatican II mass, if properly celebrated according to the Vatican II rubrics, would look like the Anglican ordinariate, except with, with Latin during all the acclamations and all the antiphons. Pretty much that, that's what you would see in the, in, in the Vatican II Mass as followed by Sacrosanctum Concilium. The best way, I, I could tell you, it would look like the Anglican ordinariate, altar rails, altar boys, patens, ad orientum, a Eucharistic prayer number one, uh, except they would have all the acclamations, doxologies, and antiphons would be Latin, all of them. But that, that's the way it would look like. Just a, a little more English would have been added or the vernacular language. What we see now, Ruben, is a bastardization of the, even the documents of Vatican II, to, to, to put it mildly. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah, so... Yeah, uh, go ahead. So it's a shame, to put it mildly, that, that there are so many Catholics out there who cite Vatican II in support of liturgical sacramental novelties and irregularities, when in fact it's painfully obvious that they've never even read the conciliar documents, just like what you said. Um, the, the then Pope Benedict XVI lamented this fact at a Mass in 2012 commemorating the 50th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council, in which he himself had participated as a theological expert. And there's a big quote you want you want to cover that just yeah yeah this is Pope this is Cardinal Ratzinger Ratzinger that, right uh, he, he writes we can understand uh, what I myself felt at the time during the council 
there was an emotional tension as we face the common task of making the truth and beauty of the faith shine out on our time without sacrificing it to the, to the demands of the present or leaving it tied to the past. The eternal presence of God resounds in the faith, transcending time. Yet it can only be welcomed by us in our own unrepeatable action. Therefore, I believe that the most important thing, especially on such a significant occasion as this, uh, is to revive in the whole church that positive tension, that yearning to announce Christ again to contemporary men. But so that this interior thrust towards the new evangelization neither remains just an idea nor be lost in confusion, it needs to be built on a concrete and precise basis. And this basis is the documents of the Second Vatican Council, the place where it found expression. This is why I have often insisted on the need to return, as it were, to the letter of the council that, that is to its texts, also to draw from them its authentic spirit, which, by the way, it hasn't been filed, filed for 52 years. Uh, I have repeated that the true legacy of Vatican II is to be found in them. Reference to the document saves us from the extre- from, from extremes of anachronistic nostalgia and running too far ahead and allows what is new to be welcomed in a context of continuity. The council did not formulate anything new in matters of faith, nor did it wish to replace what was ancient. Look at that. Those last two sentences are gold right here. I'm going to repeat it again. He says, reference to the documents saves us from extremes of anachronistic nostalgia and running too far ahead and allows what is what is new to be welcomed in a context of continuity. Notice, continuity with the past, that's what he's talking about. The council did not formulate anything new in matters of faith, nor did it wish to replace what was ancient. Again, it's referring to the mass here. Rather, it concerned itself with seeing that the same faith might continue to be lived in the present day that it might remain a living faith in a world of change. In other words, if you want to know what Vatican II really said, read the documents. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's this one line in there where it talks, uh, when it says the letter of the council as opposed to the authentic spirit. Well, that that term, the spirit of Vatican II, has caused so many problems because Oh yeah. That, then that's where it these priests that's the buzzword Ruben that the left uses yeah and they and, and they've run roughshod for 52 years right that so they they make their changes and they go well this is the spirit they they're determining what the spirit the you know there's letter of the law and spirit of the law you know and um they're they're turning the spirit into the letter you know for them and correct and that's not good and uh yeah you know and, we, and I, I, mm-hmm. I can tell you when that this actually when this really took place Ruben in the U.S. I can give you the actual date, okay? It was, <clears throat> it was in 1976, the, the left started a big movement in the country, which was called Call to Action. They were called Call to Action Conferences. They were started in Detroit, Michigan in 1976. And it was essentially to implement now the changes that were made after Vatican II from 1965 to 1970 uh, Annabelle Bonini, uh, he he continued with a with this commission on the liturgy, and they essentially rewrote the mass outside of what Sacrosanctum Concilium says. The mass that he wrote is not found in the documents of Sacrosanctum Concilium, but it was these it was these leftist progressive clergy in 1978 that said, okay, 
Let's push it. I mean, 76 in Detroit, Michigan. Let's promulgate this through the entire country. And again, these were all social justice priests. They were just basically promoting birth control, homosexuality, you know, women priests. It was all the dissenters that started this movement called Call to Action. And this is where very early on, by the way, Mother Angelica, she just kind of red-pilled. And she started an, a, a counter movement in the 80s that started traveling around the country. Father Crappie is one of the big, the big guns there, Father Mitch Pacwa. It was called Call to Holiness. And so there was a running gun battle, and it was over, Ruben, the proper uh, celebration of the Mass. Hmm. Yeah, that's the history behind it. That's, that's good. So, um, so since we're talking about the intention, the priest's intention, you know, the, the, uh, the, the priest, again, we, we really won't, won't know. It's, it's kind of a, it's one of a mystery, you know, unless he, he tells you that he doesn't intend to do what the church intends to do. Uh, but there was a, there was a case, uh, and I'll give you an example where this came up. Uh, since the intention, the minister can, by withholding his internal intention or having an internal intention that contradicts that of the, the right, albeit or prevent the effect of the sacrament, the church recognizes that it can never know the internal intention of the minister, assumes it is the same as the external intention, the intention which the traditional right provides by its very wording, unless he himself informs the church otherwise. And uh, when we get back on the break, I'm going to tell you about a bishop in South America who was strongly prejudice against ordaining certain people and uh we're this 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 mm. happened so i'm gonna go ahead and uh, share that real quick when we get back got it now back to jesus 911 if this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Jesus 911, two-man car. We are back on Soul Patrol. Uh, I was telling, a, uh, giving you an example here on, on problems with uh, sacraments. And every sacrament ha- has to have proper form, matter, and intention. And um, so when we're, th- we're talking about the the Eucharist being validly, you know, the priest um, confecting the sacrament, he has to be a valid priest too, you know. So, it and the only ones uh, to, to to give holy orders, you have to have a bishop, a valid bishop, to ordain him. Well, there was a case in uh, a bishop in South America who was strongly prejudiced against ordaining the native clergy, and so on his deathbed he confessed that when it came to the native clergy, he had always withheld his intention to ordain him, right? So the priest who heard his confession refused him absolution unless he gave permission for this fact to be exposed to the proper authorities. This permission, this, this permission was granted. All the native clergy involved were reordained and such episodes are extremely rare in the history of the church. And for obvious reasons, not normally made public. So, so what that tells me is that there weren't valid priests. So they weren't having valid consecrations, so to see how the trickle down effect it it's uh, it's very important to to follow the you know the the rules of the church form matter and intention and in the case of uh, a priest saying uh, or consecrating the host we we can only uh, assume that unless he's explicitly 
it's you know it's even hard to to tell and as the article says even in the way he uh maybe if he abuses something he doesn't do something that he was supposed to and uh that doesn't mean that he doesn't intend to do what the church intends to do so anyway you want to last we got yeah the article ends it says so what's the takeaway here there are several first of all if you want to accuse a priest of violating the rubrics of the mass you should read the rubrics yourself first to make sure your, your accusation is sound secondly a priest's violation of the mass rubrics even if done conscientiously and deliberately does not necessarily prove that the priest lacked the requisite intention to consecrate the body and blood of christ thirdly to reference the documents of the Second Vatican Council on the liturgy and the sacraments is to reaffirm what the church has taught on these important topics for centuries. But if you want to cite what Vatican II teaches, it's important first to read the conciliar documents to determine what they really say, which might surprise you. Lastly, and most importantly, Catholic theologians for centuries have fundamentally agreed that in general, when administering a sacrament for consecrating the Eucharist, it can be hard for a priest to have an intention that is defective and, and thus invalidating since it requires him to actively make the decision that he does not want to do what the church teaches. In short, there's no denying that there are all sorts of liturgical problems that arise nowadays during the celebration of the mass, but it's dangerous to keep to the conclusion that the mass is for that reason, automatically invalid. And I think ultimately Ruben, what we have to do is just trust in the Lord as long as you as a lay Catholic are going to mass with the proper intention to give God uh, what is just and due to him, uh, the worship that, that's fit for God, uh, we can't worry about the bishop or the priest doing his job or not doing it. Jesus is going to take care of them. Let's just assume that even if you go to an invalid mass, uh, because again, something happened, you know, the priest didn't intend or proper in proper form or in proper manner. The fact is, that you went, you were predisposed to receive God's grace. And so God is going to give you some graces because right. the fact that you went and you were predisposed to give God what, what, what is due to God. Uh, and so despite the fact that you may have a prelate that, that didn't do what he was supposed to do, as, as uh, the catechism says in quoting the, the, the scholastics in the middle ages, uh, we are bound by the sacraments, yes, but God is not bound by the sacraments. In other words, God can save somebody or give grace to somebody outside the sacraments. Why can God do that? Because he's God. So God can circumvent the normal channels of giving a sanctifying grace, which are the seven sacraments. But like St. Dismas, on the thief on the cross, he received no sacrament. He just received sanctifying grace immediately infused to his soul. Because he repented, he had contrition, and if he could have got off that cross, he would have amended his life. Ruben? Yeah, you're right. So uh, I heard this story from a, a confidential, reliable informant, Jesse. <laughs> and okay. there was a minister of the Eucharist. Uh, they said that uh, they ran out of hosts, and uh, one of the other women ministers ran to the sacristy and brought back a ciborium full of uh, unconsecrated hosts. <laughs> And when challenged by the priest, she said, we do this all the time to his astonishment. You know, he didn't know that he didn't know that and they'd been distributing unconsecrated hosts. So like what Jesse just said, you know, <laughs> you're going there thinking you're receiving the body, blood, soul and divinity of Christ. And it's it's just a wafer. It's just a, 
unconsecrated host, you're still going to get some graces if you're properly disposed. Yes. So unfortunately, there's these shenanigans going on. I don't think they did this intentionally. They just don't know any better. You know, I'd have to think, or they're just trying to pull the. No, Ruben, they're they're just low information Catholics. That's what they are. Yeah, and they have a good heart to serve, but uh, yeah, they do. Yeah, they a lot. A lot of liberals do. Have you noticed a lot of liberal progressives and parishes? They got servants' hearts, but they just they're just not well formed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of them are open when you tell them, like, "Oh, I didn't know that." Just thank you very much. A lot of them are open to to correction because they, a lot of them just have a servant's heart. I just want to mention that how old the mass is. The mass goes back to the Last Supper. That was the first mass. So the, the first Mass, if you want to be technical, it was done in Aramaic. So I guess only the Syrian liturgy that does the Mass in Aramaic, they're doing the, they're doing the Mass of Christ, the Syrian Catholics. And the Chaldean Catholics also use Aramaic. But then very early on, right at the time of the Apostles, the Mass went from Aramaic to Greek. And it stood there in Greek and Aramaic for centuries. It was right around the 4th century where... Latin was introduced into the mass. The Greek mass was already in place, already from the time of the apostles. That's where we get the Eastern Rite Catholics. And this is why as Catholics, uh, you know, uh, we have, nobody has any business going to a, an Eastern liturgy and telling them what to do because they've been doing it for a long time. Uh, the way they've been doing it and how they've been doing it, it's, it's, their liturgy is pretty much fixed back to the time of the church fathers. But the Latin Mass started right around the 4th century, and it really took full form under Pope Gregory the Great. And uh, there was modifications here and there. Uh, it, it, it took a real robust form at the Council of Trent. Uh, it, was, it was building up to the, this beauty and this elegance in the Latin Rite up until the Council of, of Trent, where, where it took this robust, regal, royal celebration. And uh, 52 years ago, they now we have two rites in the in the Roman rite or in the Latin rite, which you have the Novus Ordo Misse, the new rite of Pope Paul VI, which has been around for I think 52 years, and then you have the Latin Mass, which has been around for about 1,600 years, the traditional Latin Mass. So there you go, Ruben. Any comments? Uh, yeah, you mentioned the Eastern Orthodox. So, you know, if if there was, if you were in a, in an area where there wasn't a Catholic Mass around. They have valid sacraments. You could, oh, absolutely. You could go to them for confession, and it, mm-hmm. and it would fulfill your Sunday obligation if you were, you know, again, there was not just because you prefer to go there, but they righteously were outside the, uh, uh, any area of the Catholic Church. So you, you could go to their, uh, their service and receive their, their communion and, and right. confession. So because they have valid orders all the way back, you know, they could trace their lineages back like we can in, in to the, the apostles. So, yeah. And, and the, and the Eastern Rite Catholics, I think there's 20, I think there's 22 rites under the Eastern Rite Catholics and they're all under the Pope, by the way. Uh, and their liturgies are very beautiful. They go back to the early church. Yep. Yeah. So we're here in the West and um, I, I'm Jesse. That's why when I read this stuff, I said, man, I'm, I, Praise God that God gave me the grace to to go to the uh, the extraordinary form to the the traditional Latin Mass because I can be, you know I don't have to worry about the, the you know the no that's true rubrics or I mean ad living is he supposed to do that it's you know it, it you'll, you'll you, yeah you'll find that the priests that celebrate the extraordinary form of the Mass 
it's uh it's it's so controlled that you see that they don't deviate there's no drunk driving they stay in their lane and mm-hmm. i'm not trying to i'm not trying to belittle or um cast dispersions on anyone going to the Nova Sordo and now but we we have found you know and, and it's i think statistics bear out and i think we've said it on another show generally speaking the people who attend the latin mass are have done more study or more research into yes faith. that's a fact right so yeah it's um you know and and we were you and i were came up in that that area in that in that era with you know in the late 60s early 70s so we went through all this and right. uh we were poorly catechized and it, mm-hmm. i mean you, you know we all heard your story you were almost out of the church thanks be to paul Clay. <laughs> i was almost 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 out of calvary chapel ruben yeah exactly <laughs> but you'd be up there with uh yeah, I won't even mention. I'd be that. out there. I'd be out there raising my hands uh, with a bunch of other ex-Catholics. By now, you probably would have learned to play the guitar too. So you... yeah, I would have been an electric guitar player or drummer over there. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that that's uh. I hope you learned something from this. I hope that people, you know, that this got some of their questions answered. I know it it helped me, and uh, so. Ruben, I want to give a plug to these good young Catholics. They've got a, a, a part two coming out. It's called Mass of the Ages. Mass of the Ages. I think we had them on here. Uh, this is Jacob Tate and Cameron O'Hearn, where they go through the history of the Latin Mass. Part two's coming out, and part two's going to be it's going to be powerful mm-hmm. on the Mass of the Ages. It's it's a deep dive investigation into Archbishop Annibal Bonini, his Masonic background, and his creation of the Novus Ordo Mass. So that's going to be part two in the Mass of the Ages. It's it's coming up. Uh, from these young these young Catholics, uh, Jacob Tate, Cameron O'Hearn. Uh, their website is massoftheages.com, massoftheages.com. Website, okay. Yeah, and you know, um, the movie with uh, Mark Wahlberg, uh, Fox oh, yeah. 2, is coming out next week. I believe it, the 13th is going to be released, uh, Mel Gibson movie, and uh, about a Catholic priest who, uh, well, he had a wild life before he was a priest, kind of had a late vocation. And um, just kind of heroic, uh, the way he, he he suffered for Christ in the end. So yeah. anyway, uh, this is Passion Week. Friday's the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. And uh, this, uh, this Sunday is uh, Palm Sunday. So let's all prepare ourselves, be properly disposed. We've been, uh, Jesse, you want to wrap it up? Yep, up next, Gary Machuda, the big guy from the Midwest Command Center, hands-on apologetics. As for us, we are EOW, end of watch. We are out. See you next Christ time. Uh, We'll see you next time. Same Christ time, same Christ channel. God bless you. Keep the faith. Viva Cristo Rey. And uh, have a happy, holy, blessed, holy week, the week that changed the world. God bless you.